Welcome to the second reading podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello, and welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of August 3rd. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. This week, I'm happy to welcome Jonathan Tylove, chief political writer of the Austin American Statesman, back to the podcast today. Jonathan, how are you this week? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Now, Jonathan had a a long piece in the Austin American Statesman that was published in the paper Sunday, and I guess on the web, probably slightly before that, that was called Facing a Crisis, Abbott Charts a Lonely Middle Course. Um, As always, Jonathan, you range widely in that story in terms of sourcing and interviewed several sources for the story. But It stood out in part because you got some one-on-one time with the governor. So let's start with that story. Why don't you tell me a little about what you mean by this lonely middle course? What is Abbott navigating between and and why is he so lonely? Uh, Well, he's he's lonely because his his polling numbers are very low. So, um, you know, they haven't been this low in his... uh, political career. So it's self-evidently lonely, but it's also because um, there are very loud voices on both sides of him who are critical of him. So the Democratic Party has been critical of him from the start for not doing enough and for uh, essentially having, you know, people's deaths on his hands. And then uh, a minority, but a very vocal minority of the Republican Party, which actually controls the sort of state the, the sort of activist network that people at the recent state convention think that he's gone way too far and that he's trampled on their liberties with mask orders and other executive actions. And uh, they selected as their uh, new state party chair, Alan West, who has spent his time saying that uh, Abbott's actions are that of a, uh, of that of, uh, a tyrant. So uh, that makes for a lonely existence because there's no one really out there um, amplifying his voice. He's, um, he's on TV every day being the voice for his path, but it's, it's not one that you uh, hear seconded all over the place. Now, you, you in the interview that it's covered in the story that you actually asked him about the the, the pretty harsh language that, that Alan West has used about the governor. And, you know, he, he was fairly, well, I'll let you characterize it, but he, you know, I mean, in, in a, in a crude sort of way, he didn't take the bait of your question, but he, you know, but he wasn't very combative about it at all. Right. Uh, no, I <laughs> not taking the bait is uh, his modus operandi and it's, you know, it's frustrating for a reporter, but you step back and you go that it's it's a very smart strategy from his point of view. There is not much to be gained um, from taking the bait. There's not much to be uh, gained by getting in a fight with with Alan West and the um, the hardcore of his party's grassroots. Uh, there's not much to be gained by 
getting in a fight with uh, or showing any kind of um, dissent from the, the Trump path. So while, you know, it was, it was for one question after another, him saying things that seemed non-responsive or uh, not particularly um, from the heart, it all made perfect sense from his point of view. And I think he's, he's as good as it gets at not answering questions in ways that don't get him in trouble. Well, I'm, I'm going to put a pin in that. Uh, we, we started with for a second and come back to his interview style, but I, you know, I maybe showed my hand by jumping right on the politics of the relationship between the governor and the, and the, cha- the, new, the newly elected chair of the Texas Republican Party. But I want to go back and, and have you tell us a little bit about how the governor expressed his policy position, particularly on the, on the pandemic. Obviously, you know, this has been front and center for the governor since the pandemic started uh, in the United States. And, and we knew it was only a matter of time before it got to Texas. And it's certainly here now. But, uh, you know, tell me how you've, how the governor responded to questions about where he is taking the state or where he's trying to lead the state in terms of the pandemic response, because obviously that's, that's the main issue in front of him. And it's the, it's one in which there's been a lot of speculation about where Greg Abbott, you know, quote unquote, really is on the issue because he has been responding to, you know, all of these sort of different criticisms and all of these different constituencies, as you were saying a minute ago. So, you know, how, you know, as you walk away from that interview and, and thinking about how you portrayed it in the story, how, how would you characterize where the governor is on handling the pandemic right now, given all the cross currents, uh, particularly, as you mentioned, the, the approach coming out of the White House? Um, yeah, well, I think uh, Abbott is at pains to um, portray his path as steady, consistent, um, following the advice of um, doctors and scientists and public health concerns, but at the same time trying to um, keep, um, to revive, reopen, and maintain the strength of the Texas economy, which is really what his guiding light is throughout his administration. It's, it's, it's the, the power and strength of the Texas economy that defines what he thinks is his achievements as governor and what makes Texas stand out. So the the problem he has politically is that I think um, for as long as things were going okay, he got credit, but as soon as uh, things got bad here, he was portrayed as nothing but a Trump clone who was a victim now, or not a victim, but who was boxed in by his loyalty to the president and was not conducting himself any differently than the president. And I think that's where um, I think it's a bit unfair because I think he has been for, you know, since uh, around a little before July 4th, been on TV every day imploring people to wear their masks and ultimately mandating that they wear masks and, and telling people that this is dire and that they have to take it seriously and they have to change their behavior and if they want to keep the economy open, they're going to have to. That's a message that if Trump were consisting, consistently delivering it, there'd be a very different appraisal of Trump. At the same time, Abbott has never done anything to publicly cross Trump, to 
give Trump any reason to um, to uh, you know disparage him, which is you know kind of a low threshold. It doesn't take a whole lot to get the president to do that, even to a, an ally. So I think it's I think part of it is that you you could mistake what he's doing for being simply a replica of Trump if you don't look more closely. And I think the politics of it are that people don't necessarily want to give him credit for what he does that's more proactive and that's different than uh, Trump's behavior. And I think you've written about how we, you and, and Josh about the need for him to kind of seize that space because the public health depends on it. Um, at the same time, I do think that you know, he, he's at pains to make it look like he's, he's, he's uh, had this very steady course all along. And I think obviously he has had to make adjustments. He opened bars and then closed bars. He thought, um, uh, he, he, he resisted mask orders until he imposed one. So, but I think that's, you know, that's to his credit that he hasn't been locked in on these things and that he has made adjustments when he's had to. I mean, it sounds to me, and I, and I know you and I have talked about this before, like on one hand, you think it's fair, you know, that the criticism, I, sh I shouldn't even call it the criticism, although it is in some ways, the observation that he has been extremely mindful of avoiding Trump's ire is accurate. Am I, I mean, do you, do you agree with that? Uh, yes, I think that, that um, yes, I think the last thing he needs or wants is to be criticized by the president. At the same time, I don't think that he is um, every day trying to curry favor with the president. I think he's... As That's somebody as, else's you know, job, I think, in state government. <laughs> exactly. He's not going to be out. He's going to be outdone there. So his, his, his path is to, is to avoid uh, the wrath of Trump while at the same time, as much as possible... Um, actually trying to come up with an outcome that's, uh, you know, he has to live with the result here. It seems in some ways that the president feels as long as there's someone else to blame and governors are, are good choices for that, he's less concerned about the ultimate outcome than he is about who, who gets the, uh, the blame or the credit. Whereas I think Abbott realizes that he will live with these results for the rest of his political career, that this is his defining moment and that the fate of Texas, you know, rests in the balance. I think that I, you know, on one hand, I'm I'm hesitating because I'm I, I'm hesitant to go too far down the road of trying to to really analyze the governor in a in a sort of you know personal way too deeply. But uh, I do want to go back a little bit, and, and you know, you got this opportunity to talk to the governor. You talked to him for a while, it sounded like. And let's go a little behind the scenes with the interview. Um, and you started to talk about this, but I want to I, I give you a little more space to elaborate. This is obviously not your first time talking to the governor, but, you know, in this interview, what was he like as an interview subject? And, you know, you were just talking about some of his, uh, I, I don't remember what word, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but... Uh, you know what I what sounded like a certain evasiveness or an almost kind of relentless on messageness to his responses to your questions. Um, talk a little bit about that, and, and and I'm curious whether you think he's always been like that. Is this in other times you've interviewed him? Is this 
an, you know, an adjustment to the current difficulties he's in. Talk about all that a little. Um, no, he is, um, I don't know what I should say famously, but he is, he is a very, very difficult interview if what you're trying to do is to get news out of that interview, unless it's the news that he wants to tell you. And so sometimes I've interviewed him at the beginning or the end of a session or the middle of a session or something in the middle of some other crisis where he has something that he wants to tell me. And then, you know, it's quickly apparent what the, what the news is, what the headline, what the lead of the story is. And, you know, you can sort of fill out the rest of it. In this case, I was, the, the agenda here for me was to kind of do a, a six-month check-in after writing something just before he opened the, uh, not quite six months, but just in April, just before he reopened and how, how consequential this was going to be, to kind of look back and say, okay, so how's it going? And, and for lots of obvious reasons, because of the resurgence of the the uh, virus and his own uh, plummeting political fortunes, it's not a good time. So I was looking for the governor to make some assessment of things he did well or didn't do as well and some introspection. And they're really... That's not something he does, and that's not something that is really profitable for him to do if I kind of look at it clear-eyed. But when I finished, I, I knew that it was going to be tough to get um, answers. But when it was over, I was kind of in despair because I looked and I said, "There's, I don't have anything. There's nothing, <laughs> There's nothing here. But, but to my credit, I wrote 3,000 words based on that value. And it really wasn't a vacuum because he's everything he's doing has a purpose, and he, he, so so you know ultimately I think, and I uh, as you mentioned, I talked to a lot of other people, so I saw you know I think that's part of this middle path, this loneliness, is that he's crafting these answers that that are trying not to um, uh, create greater problems for him. You know, just one note in language when I asked him about Alan West. He said, oh, we chit-chatted the other day. Well, the use of the word chit-chat was like, I don't know whether that was brilliant or ridiculous <laughs> because here's a guy who's, who's undermining, that's what I said to him. I said, what's it like having a state chairman who's undercutting your authority? He went, oh, I don't think so. You know, like, like oh, uh, why would you think that when it's perfectly obvious? And then he said, we chit-chatted the other day. This is when they both were with Trump in, in Midland. And I just thought that was kind of great because it was like how casual, how chummy is chit chat, and it 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 you know how could and but but the whole purpose here was I'll deal with him another day. I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing, and you're never going to find out what I'm doing uh, unless it's you know by inference. So well, it's, yeah, this is pretty baked in to a certain degree, right? In, in the sense that. You know, when, when I hear you describe, well, the governor's not going to answer my questions, he, he's got a message and he is going to stick to that message. He's kind of doing his job and you're doing your job by trying to, to not just get the message, right? Right. And, and, and you know, the, 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 the extra um, um, burden on me was that, you know, the, the complaint from, you know, the reporting, you know, newspaper reporters around the state is that he's not accessible, that he no longer really even does these press briefings. When he did them, they were, you know, a, a pool or just a couple of reporters present. And yet he's on with TV news six or seven times a day um, 
around the state. That's how he communicates and he goes on for four or five minutes and talks about the COVID story of the day and what's happening. And he gives appeal to the, the citizens of Texas. And I think, you know, there's a sense, oh, that's, that's softball stuff. And that's not been my experience. My experience is that his, his questioning by local news anchors is, is pretty aggressive and sharp because there's a lot of concerns about what's going on and they're, they feel compelled to directly ask him questions and he cannot dismiss what they're saying because they're sort of surrogates for his constituents in a very kind of concrete way and it's live on TV. Um, talking to me, uh, asking him to think about more broadly about you know what he did right and what he did wrong, that's a whole different category of questions and ones that he has more reason not to answer and that he's more skillful at not answering. So you know, I, my, my feeling was, gee, I, I hear I got a half hour, which is not a lot, but it's more than others have gotten. And did I somehow blow it or squander it because I did not exact from him something um, sensational or, you know, totally uh, what people hadn't expected or hadn't heard before? Well, I, I don't want to cultivate your despair any more than you've already expressed, but I, um, you know, I do want to, I mean, I want to ask you then, as somebody who's been in, in journalism for a long time, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic that, that you're referring to here in terms of the pushback against the media strategy that the, the governor and his team have chosen over the last few weeks, you know, much fewer kind of open, general, you know, broadly speaking, kind of statewide focused press events and, and briefings and a lot more kind of targeted hits and a lot more targeted hits to local media markets. He's got a lot of pushback from the, you know, what we used to call the, the print media and the dailies on that strategy. Um, it feels to me like some of that pushback and not all of it, but some of that pushback really does lay bare a kind of bias inside well, you know, uh, I shouldn't say inside among print media about local about local television news and a, and a kind of assumption that it's always going to be lighter weight than you know the more quote unquote serious journalism that happens at, at the dailies or at you know the you know new media you know that obviously in Texas the example would be the Tribune, um, you know, and I uh, you know you shared some of the recordings you made of some of those television briefings, which I appreciate. And I've watched a lot of them on, on the internet and the local ones he's done here. And, and I, well, I think that the quality of some of those interviews is, is a little sometimes uneven. Some of them are very aggressive. So I, you know, I'm wondering how you, you know, how you kind of assess that strategy. I mean, is the, you know, on the governor's part, I mean, do you think that you know, he's obligated to do as much media as he can and to somehow divide his time between more statewide media and, and these local television strategies. I mean, you know, I, I, you were, I mean, I think you, you were positive about the job that a lot of the, the local, the local TV journalists are doing, but I'm wondering if you step back, how you assess the overall strategy and its implications. Well, this has been his strategy from the day he took office. So he was always um, um, avoiding a lot of interviews with 
uh, newspapers and and you know the other outlets you talked about, and preferring to just um, do these hits either with talk radio, friendly talk radio, or with um, the local stations. And I think when when he wasn't in the middle of a pandemic, the kind of um, to the degree to which that's kind of a, an avoidance strategy became very apparent. And a lot of times those interviews didn't produce much except for the governor kind of flattering the local people and and building his political support. I think now it's different because he really is, you know, this is not, um, you know, Andrew Cuomo would have this daily briefing and obviously Trump does what Trump does. But his his method was this, and I thought it showed a certain amount of fortitude because He's, he is talking more directly to people in that way. He's, he is delivering sometimes a grim message, and he is, uh, he is getting very, very direct questions about whether it's the opening of schools that are, that are you know, with follow-up questions saying, you're, you, you know, this has been confused and, and you're not clear and what's going on and why should we believe this? And so I, I think that's all to his credit. I think, you know, the difference is that the these uh, outlets may be less likely to to step back and do longer stories or you know kind of analyzing his leadership over you know a period of time and that you know I'd like to think he owes it to the broader public also to do interviews uh, with uh, the more traditional outlets which he avoids because I think he's the the settled opinion was that they were less friendly to him but so I you know I'd like to see both but I think the the idea that that um, this regimen he's gone through of talking to local um, TV is some kind of uh, a free ride or a picnic for him is 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 not at all accurate. Yeah, I mean, I I wonder to some extent if um, there isn't a little bit of a lag in their adjustment of that media strategy. I mean, I'd be curious, um, you know, and and honestly, you know, to the extent that. The model in other states does seem to have been more frequent, kind of statewide briefings focused, you know, very, very intently on the, on the, on the pandemic and, you know, to try to, you know, have a, a, a kind of constant kind of rhythm of these things when things are bad. Now, you know, I mean, I think everybody doesn't have to do what Andrew Cuomo did in New York, but for better or for worse, that did become something of, of the model. I, I, I want to, before we move on from the interview a little bit, I, I want to ask you that kind of what you left on the editing room floor in that interview. You, you know, talked to the governor for about a half hour. It sounds like you had a lot of quotes in the story, but certainly not a half hour's worth. What, you know, what were some of the interesting things you, you didn't use that people might be interested in? Um, well, there were a couple of things I had, um, you know, one of the, <laughs> One of the more curious moments of this whole thing has been the case of Shelley Luther, who was the Dallas hair, uh, had the Dallas hair salon, who opened up ahead of schedule and ultimately was jailed. And um, this was in violation of um, Abbott's orders, keeping those barbershops and salons closed for a longer period of time out of safety concerns. And as soon as she was put in jail, the entire uh, Texas political establishment stood on its head and contorted itself in whatever manner they could to help her. So 
Dan Patrick offered to do her jail time for her, uh, offering a novel legal theory there. He um, offered to pay her fine. Uh, Sean Hannity also offered to pay her, her, her fine. Um, Ted Cruz flew to her salon to get a haircut. And Greg Abbott essentially countermanded his own order, saying no one should go to jail for this. So I had talked to her earlier in the day to get her opinion of Governor Abbott, which is, remains pretty low. Um, and I asked him about it because I wondered whether he felt in retrospect that maybe he undermined his message by going to such lengths to defend someone and set a tone that ultimately uh, produced, uh, pr proved counterproductive. And again, he was, no, he, he would have none of that. Um, he thought that um, she uh, should never have been uh, put in jail for that, that uh, there was an inconsistency in the application of justice in Dallas County, and that he behaved perfectly appropriately. Um, uh, you know, to me, that was, um, that was an indication of the power of a relatively small but vocal minority within the Republican Party, and she remains a, you know, a very popular figure who I think will run for office at some point and, you know, probably be successful. So uh, that was that, that was interesting to me to the degree at which he he's not ready yet to say, well, maybe that didn't look great. Um, well, and in terms of the way that he is having to manage the politics, it's probably fair to also note that, you know, that was not a spontaneous decision by Shelley Luther, right? By all indications, there was, you know, there was some planning that w that went into that and some backing by organized, you know, interests in that sector of the party, which is increasingly giving the, the governor trouble, right? Well, I, I, I don't know so much about that. What I do know is that she's now kind of advising uh, bar owners who are thinking of, uh, who are staging their own kind of protests about bars being closed. So she's, she's, in that sense, um, not gone away. Um, yeah, I mean, so if she wasn't, so if she, if she wasn't then, she is now. <laughs> I think, um, well, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, her, her, uh, her I can't really speak to the, the broader agenda there, but I do know that she's, she's um, committed to this in a way that's going to be ongoing. You know, one of the one of the things that was interesting in the story that that did make it in was uh, the governor's comments about how he is listening to the health professionals, the doctors, and the scientists, um, and 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 that that is you know what is driving his approach to this. And we've seen this you now come up a couple of times. I mean, a few weeks ago when. Uh, without getting into the weeds too much, the story in the New York Times that suggested that, you know, the governor was talking more to the vice president than the president, but that he was also t talking to Dr. Burks um, and to, to a lesser degree at the time to Dr. Fauci. Um, this, this idea of, of, of who he's taking medical, who he's taking advice from in particular scientific and medical advice also came up in, in some of the stuff that you didn't use, right? Uh, right. So, so yeah, I mean, well, first with, with Burks, she's in, she's out. Um, you know, um, he's been listening to her consistently. She's been supportive. The Times sort of analysis of all, all this was that she had fallen victim to happy talk and wasn't really in touch with uh, what was going on. 
now she's apparently much more concerned and worried about where things are headed and, and Trump's attacked her. So, you know, one day she's in, one day she's out, then she's back in and then she's back out. So the thing is that he's also taking advice from, there were four doctors who, who uh, he was particularly taking advice from and uh, they included John Zerwas, and, um, who's a former state rep and an anesthesiologist, um, and Dr. Hellerstadt, who's the head of um, Health and Human Services, and, and um, Mark McClellan, who was uh, formerly from Texas, from a Texas political family, but is, uh, was a former head of the FDA, and um, had a very good reputation and had done much of the sort of um, models for how you how you approach a pandemic like this. And I've talked to him a few times, and while he's positive about um, Abbott listening to him and, and you know trying to balance various interests, he has been hesitant. He has not said that they that he signed off on when he opened exactly, and he thought uh, as he accelerated the opening that it was a little too much too soon, that they didn't have the um, testing and contact tracing up to speed. And when I asked uh, Abbott about this, he was adamant. He pushed back and he said, no, these doctors signed off on the way we reopen. And I thought, well, that's kind of inconsistent. Um, but then I looked at the way he said it. And, you know, this point's been made often that Greg Abbott is a lawyer, judge, Supreme Court justice and attorney general. And I think what he was saying was the protocols that they required businesses to adhere to when they opened are what the doctors signed off on, not the decision to reopen exactly the way he did. So I think, I think, I think that's what's going on here, is I think he's, he's giving a very precise definition of what they signed off on. And I don't think that they were out there screaming, you know, you're doing the wrong thing. But I also don't think it's fair for him to say, um, you know, every step of the way I was doing what the doctors told me. And I think he's even, he, while he, in this conversation, talked about following the science and talk, listening to the doctors, he used to reel off the names of the doctors who he was listening to here. Um, and he doesn't invoke their name as often as he used to. So I think uh, he's recognized that um, maybe he shouldn't be pressing that quite as strongly, particularly in the case of um, Dr. McClellan. So in a, in a lot of ways, this, um, you know, well, I, I can ask that a different, let me ask this a different way. So, you know, in, in the end, I mean, it, that feels a little bit to me, partially like being politically careful on the part of the governor, on the part of the governor, but also falls within the pattern of saying, we're going to, we're going to be specific and we are going to, to send messages and, and, you know, to some extent issue executive orders. I mean, and, and, and it's up to you guys to kind of figure out what we mean. Is that unfair? No. And, and that's precisely what happened with his mask order with, um, um, Nelson Wolf, the, the uh, county judge in Bear County, where, he was saying no mask order, no mask order. And then I guess it was maybe John Whitman or someone on the staff who said, well, if you read the uh, executive order very carefully, you might find something there. And they realized that they could tell businesses they had to uh, in invoke the mask orders, even if they couldn't. And when Nelson Wolf, Nelson Wolf told me, well, yeah, I kind of figured it out and 
took the signal and did it. And the governor uh, came back and supported me and said, you're a genius for having, or not a genius, you're the one who carefully read my order. Now, only a you know, Supreme Court justice or a jurist would think that the way that you implement public policy is by writing something and expecting that someone will carefully analyze the exact language and come to certain conclusions that you intended them to find but did not want to articulate, even though you're the governor of the state. And I, and I think that in a lot of ways really underlines the why there is some difficulty here, <laughs> you know, to, to oversimplify, but there, you know, there is a sense of kind of a, a degree of one-way communication here that I think is, is occasionally get, just getting them in, in trouble and to some degree causing unnecessary grief in terms of the approach. You know, I mean, I was struck in, in your interview by the degree to which in context, some of, you know, the things that the governor said sounded, you know, precisely right and, and almost devoid of the kind of politics that are clearly at work nonetheless. I mean, there's a, there's a passage in the story in which he's talking about the degree to which, you know, this is a very fluid environment that science works imperfectly. We think one thing for a while and then we find something out and we have to change course. And, you know, that seems perfectly plausible. The only problem is that given the way that it's been handled, it sounds like they are simply laying a groundwork for having shifted courses, um, not because of the vagaries of science, but because of the politics. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, I mean, unless I forget, the, the most obvious example of this was when he issued his stay-at-home order and would not describe it and denied that it was a stay-at-home order. And it was, as a reporter writing this on deadline, I think every all the other reporters were figuring it out that he just issued a stay-at-home order, which he said wasn't. So how exactly do you write what it is that he just did? Because he's denying what it is he just did. And by the next day, he wanted it to be a stay-at-home order because he wanted people to know that he was doing um, the same thing that New York and California were doing in terms of locking things down. But he did not want everyone to know that right away. And I, and think, yeah. I think they certainly didn't want the headlines to say the headlines in the state to say Texas follows New York and California, right? Exactly. But but well, except that he wanted half half the state and half the nation to know that, and he wanted the other half not to know it. And you know, you can't do that. And so he's he's trying to. It's it, that you can't resolve. And I do think that speaks to the problem that you're describing, which is, um, I mean, somewhere in the story I had, you know, James Huffines, uh, who's the, the uh, former UT regent, who uh, is the chair of his strike force reopening Texas and is a very kind of, um, you know, moderate uh, in, in tone and politics guy. And he said, well, I admire the governor because what I've discovered in great leaders is, you know, is humility is what stands out because of his, and so his ability to, to reverse course on uh, masks um, and, and, and to reverse course on the bars showed character. 
yeah, but Abbott still is not one who's like he's he's not about expressing humility or or defining or articulating his mistakes um, very often. And I think what you were seeing there was yes, things are changing, and I'm also trying to to maintain the impression that. I'm one step ahead of this every step of the way, and that I am guided only by um, results. And you know, I think what I think what critics lose sight of is the fact that you know the the <laughs> the Texas economy does matter to a lot of people, and there's a, there's two crises here, so that a a single-minded, exclusive focus on the public health crisis as it pertains to the spread of coronavirus doesn't entail every piece of the crisis that are facing Texans, even from a public health standpoint. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I think that you know, the overall discourse is beginning to move ever so slightly away from this, this either the economy or the coronavirus thinking and and becoming a little more multidimensional and, and systemic in that way, but it's complicated. It's hard to do that. People, you know, as, as you know, a lot of people say, uh, I sound like Trump, but it's been you know researched extensively. Uh, people don't think very clearly about complex systems because they're hard to think about, and that's part of what's going on there. Um, Jonathan, I want to thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for sharing uh, uh, some of the stuff that didn't go into the paper. Um, that's, you know, helpful. Um, so thanks to Jonathan. Thanks to our staff at Liberal Art in the Liberal Arts Development Studio at UT Austin. As always, you can find more data and analysis at the Texas Politics Project website, texaspolitics.utexas.edu. This week, we've updated our presidential poll tracker with some recent numbers from the morning consult. Uh, there's a new analysis of public opinion on mail-in voting and uh, the impact of, of President Trump's messaging on that and much more. So thanks for listening. Thanks again to Jonathan. And we'll be back next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.